The reading today is out of Nehemiah, from the first chapter, from verse 4 to the end of the chapter, which is 11. And if you found it in your Bibles, I will proceed reading this. And so, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned against you. Even, uh, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are faithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts in uttermost parts of their heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was the cupbearer to the king. The word of the Lord. All right, well, good morning. And it's, uh, it's great to be here with you all. Uh, a few of us here in the sanctuary, but uh, the rest of you at home. So I'm very much imagining you all at your homes uh, listening and uh, connecting with us this way. So uh, we're going to start again. I'm going to do several slides again. I, I like the slides, I think, especially as we're working in this sort of a, a scenario where you can't actually be in here and we can't have that personal contact. I think it helps sort of focus our attention towards the things that we're studying. So take a look at this first slide. It's a little bit of review. Again, Nehemiah is a historical book, and the historical context is incredibly important in that book if we want to capture the message of the book. So I'm just going to quickly do a little bit of review and run through this history again. Uh, about 2,000 years before Christ, Abraham lived, and uh, he is the father of the Hebrew people. And then about a 1,000 years after Abraham, so a big span of time, a 1,000 years later, Israel actually becomes a nation under King Saul, followed by King David, followed by King Solomon. And, and those three rules spanned about 100 years. Solomon's rule, uh, rule began well, ended poorly. David's rule began well, ended poorly, and Solomon's rule began well and ended poorly. And you've got a trend that's happening here. The three of these together, their rule ended poorly. And the, the country after that 100 years of sort of golden rule actually spun into a great deal of dysfunction. The country split. There was a civil war, the country split. And, and, and after that, you had northern kingdom, which was Israel, southern kingdom, which was Judah. And then Israel just entered into these years of, of sort of dysfunction. 
uh, spiritually especially. And then in 722 BC, the Assyrians attacked the northern kingdom of Israel and hauled it off into perpetual uh, exile. And they are now and still considered the lost tribes of Israel. In 606 BC, heading further down the timeline, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon begins a war with Judah, attacks Judah. And by 586 BC, which is a really critical date in biblical history, 586 BC, Jerusalem falls. Jerusalem falls. And the war is pretty much over. Jerusalem has been beaten, destroyed. The temple is destroyed. The city wall is torn down. It's a big date in the, in the city, in, in the history of Israel, uh, particularly spiritually. Because spiritually, the nation now spins into what are some of its darkest years. They're hauled off into exile. So many of them, a huge percentage of the population is taken to Babylon as exiles to serve King Nebuchadnezzar there. And it's in this context that Nehemiah the prophet writes in, or sorry, Jeremiah the prophet writes in Jeremiah 29, the famous passage at the depth of their trouble, he writes the words of the Lord to the exiles in Babylon. He says, I know the plans that the Lord has for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and pray and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. So that was the very beginning of exile. It took generations for this to even begin to happen. So in in 539 roughly AD, Zerubbabel leads a group of exiles back, the first group back. In um, 458 BC, Ezra, leads another group of captives back. And then we come all the way down to 445 BC, which is the time of Nehemiah, when Nehemiah begins sort of his interaction with all of these historical facts. He is the cupbearer of King Artaxerxes. And interestingly enough, if you want to know why the king's heart was softening towards Israel, King Artaxerxes, his mother-in-law, or, or stepmother actually, was Esther, was Queen Esther of the Old Testament. So there you have God sort of working through history to soften uh, the, the, um, the Persians' hearts towards the Israel captives by actually bringing Esther into the royal family. So uh, that's sort of a bit of the background. Uh, Nehemiah, in the beginning of the book, you'll remember last week, he finds out that things are not going well back in Jerusalem, even though two large waves of exiles have returned back to the city, the city still lies in disgrace. The walls of the city are still broken. The people are still weak and vulnerable and disadvantaged before their enemies, which were like these local warlords that sort of ruled the area now. And the good and the prosperous plans that God had promised for these people are still not being realized. Even though some of them have gotten back to the promised land, they're still not being realized. And Nehemiah's heart breaks. It begins to break. Uh, God has, or Israel, you see, has not yet really called upon God in the way God asked them to with all their hearts, right? When you seek me with all your heart, he said. They're not doing that. They're not doing that. Israel um, is stuck and they're struggling. And, and Nehemiah enters this scene, and uh, this is where we sort of pick up the story from here. So uh, 
we started this last week, and we're going to go to the next slide here, and it's just the passage again. Here's the passage that we're looking at today, and in this passage, I'm kind of highlighting the places that I want to focus on. So you can see there very clearly the things that I want to really focus on in this passage. So let's focus on the things that I think are the main lessons for us to grasp out of this incredible prayer that Nehemiah prays after hearing that the city is still struggling. And you can see with me uh, on this slide what we're going to be looking at. And I guess our lesson in all of this has to do with, here's my sort of focus. Here's what I want to go towards here. My, my go-to here is what does it take to get started down this road to repair and restoration? For these Jewish people, what is it going to take to get them on this road to repair and restoration, to being heard by God and being found by God? What is going to sort of break the dam for them? What's going to sort of get it moving in the right direction for them? What are some of the things that need to happen in order for Nehemiah, in order for the Jewish people, in order for, how about this, in order for us to begin to address (laughs) what what I would call the rubble or the ruin in our lives that sort of holds us back from the plans and the purposes that God truly has for us. You see, the point is that it's not an easy thing to come to address those kinds of issues. If there is rubble in our lives, it's not that easy to address it. Um, To begin to take action, right? It's hard. It's hard to come to this place of starting and admitting and breaking That's hard, especially, it's hard especially when those walls of the city of Jerusalem and that rubble lying about has been there for like 145 plus years. That's when it gets really hard, when this stuff has just sort of become systemic amongst us and it's just sort of the way things are. That's what makes it really hard to get down that road towards repair and restoration. And you know how rubble and brokenness can be, right? At least like maybe you do, uh, when we begin to live in it for a long time especially. You can, you can probably imagine how you sort of tend to get used to it. You can probably imagine how you can easily grow accustomed to it if it's been there for generations and generations, decades and decades, and in this case, 145 some odd years. You can start to just sort of ignore it. You can start to just sort of give into it. You can start to just sort of pretend it's not even there to the point that you hardly even recognize it anymore, even though it's causing a great deal of dysfunction in your life. I think we can probably all identify with stuff like this. Now, I know that I can because I'm going to use a really quick example for you here. There was a point in time in my life, in, in my family's life, when we were renovating our home. And we spent literally 10 years, because I did it myself, renovating our home. During those 10 years, we also had uh, five kids. Only we had them in six years, not 10 years. We had them in six years. We started phase one of renovation, and, and we got it moving, got to phase two, and then we started having more and more kids. We decided, well, th- three kids is good when we got to three. Let's stop at three, only to realize that Kim was already pregnant with, with our next. So it's like, well, it's going to be more than three. It's going to be four. Only now, it turns out that we had twins. So it's actually five. So we have five kids in six years, and guess what? We're, we're doing the renovation all over again now, because we need more bedrooms. And we had to sort of start almost all over and even undo some of the stuff that we did. And it was like this 10 years of perpetual renovation. And, you know, when you f- and we lived in it. We lived in the house that whole time, raising children, young children. And it was hard. 
Uh, but, and you know, the first few months of it, you go, man, this is horrible. We've got to get this done quick. But then as it drags out and drags out and drags out over years, you sort of start to become uh, accustomed to it. And you, it even gets to the point where you kind of almost hardly even notice it anymore. And you just kind of lose motivation to keep going. And you find this odd level of comfort. And I guess what it really is, is that it's actually a dysfunctional level of comfort with the chaos that you're living amongst. It can be like that. And when you're there, when you're stuck there, it can be hard to identify and hard to begin to address, hard to even acknowledge that it's there. Now go to the next picture. This is a picture that's, uh, that's, that's shocking. So this is another scenario that I, that I lived through myself. I spent a year in the Philippines. And when I first arrived in the city of Manila, which is a city that, that actually grows during the course of the day from 8 million people at night. This was when I lived there in the 1980s anyways. It was about 8 million people at night and it swelled to about 10 million people during the day as all these migrants would move in and out of the city almost every day. One of the things that struck me deeply when I first got there was the air. And you can see a picture of the air quality there. It was always like that. It was just this orange haze that covered the whole city. The first two weeks I spent in Manila, my throat got just like raw and sore those two weeks. And uh, I started hacking up all of this you know, unseemly stuff as I coughed. And you know what the interesting thing was? It was it's like, I got to get away from this, I felt like, those first two weeks. But then when I got to about a month... My throat cleared up. The sore went away. And I don't think that was a good thing. <laughs> I actually don't think that was a good thing. My body was trying to tell me that something is very bad here, and, and it didn't go away. I didn't leave it, and it just slowly started to sort of just become accustomed to it. It stopped telling me that something was wrong. And, 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 and I breathed normal again, and, and yet I knew I was probably damaging my health. You just become this dysfunctional sort of accustomed to it. And then the other thing that really struck me in the picture here was the children in Manila swimming in the Pasig River, which runs right through the river, or right through the city, which had a, a, a terrible reputation of being one of the most polluted city or the rivers in the world. In fact, while I was living in the Manila, the, the, the river itself caught on fire twice. It ignited twice with so many toxins floating in the water, it actually caught on fire twice. And I remember the first few weeks I was there seeing this scene of these children swimming amongst the trash in the river. They were actually jumping off of a bridge and they would have someone down at the bottom sort of pushing away and clearing away the trash floating in the water so they could jump into a clear spot. It's like I saw this and I was just so alarmed. I almost cried. I wanted to run down to the river's edge and call those kids out and say, don't do that. You're killing yourselves by doing this. But you know what? Again, two months later, I didn't notice it that much anymore. It became this sort of odd normal to see these children swimming in this river. Even though in the back of my mind, I knew that you know, one of the biggest killers in children in, in the country of Man uh, city of Manila was, was just illnesses, uh, particularly dysentery that they would get from swimming in this horrific river but it just sort of became normal. And I would actually casually watch the children swimming in the river. I've got one other picture up there of a car. Uh, someone's, I found this picture on the internet, so it's not anyone's car here. <laughs> but I don't know if you've ever either had a car, 
drove a car or known someone who drove a car that just they just kind of carried trash in their car and it's like you finish eating something at a fast food you just throw it on the floor and it just starts to pile up and 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 the owner of that car hardly even notices that that's happening until they invite someone into the car and say hey i'll give you a ride and they go oh i guess i should clear the seat out for you and uh, then they start to notice it but it's like that these sorts of dysfunctions can be like that in our world or, or in our lives and you know, I think it's so much like that with our spiritual lives as well, and our moral lives as well, and our relationship with God as well. The same kinds of acceptance and yielding and complacency, you know, and spiritual blindness can happen to us in that side of our lives as well, with our actions and our habits and our vices that slowly can creep into our lives. How about this? How about this? With our fears. And our anxieties that we have that we just sort of learn to live with. Our insecurities that we just sort of tiptoe around. Or how about this? The same sort of uh, kind of acceptance and yielding and complacency can happen with things like our, our passions and our lusts that can start to occupy our minds and our thoughts. Our hidden and unseen things. It can happen with our bits of rebellion. And, and, and I think that what I'm talking about there is our pride, our rebellious pride, our stubbornness, our stupid, stupid pride that we sort of find a space for in life and then it just sort of resides there and grows. Our weaknesses spiritually, emotionally, our frailty. Or how about this? Our anger. Our anger. Our, our, our buttons that get pushed and we allow them to get pushed and then they push us into uncontrolled behavior. It can happen. It can happen. These sorts of, of uh, acceptances and yielding and com complacency in, in, in our faith and maybe the slipping of our faith, our distancing from God as it slowly happens. Eugene Peterson writes a wonderful book that's called uh, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And he talks about how amazing it is when we just stay on course with God for a long period of time and stay in the right direction. We get very far down the will and the ways of God. But he also contrasts that with a very subtle, three-degree off direction. So a, how about a long, slight disobedience in a slightly wrong direction? You know, if, you, if, you, if you're a sailor, you know that if you sail a boat out in the ocean for a long distance and, and, and you're on course but drift off course by only three degrees, by just three degrees off course, if you sail like that for days and days and days, you know what? You're lost. You will eventually get very, very lost. And you will not end up going where you're intending to go. And so it is with us too. If we get stuck in these just small incremental misdirections that we kind of allow to exist and, and, and accept them and yield to them, they will take us long distances off course. We start to trust in ourselves more than our God. Our selfishness can start to take root. And we begin to find that what we're really pursuing is our own lives more than God's life for us. And I could go on and on. I could go on, but I think we can probably all find some place of identification in that list that I've just thrown out there. 
And in these areas of life, we can so easily live among what I would sort of metaphorically call rubble (laughs) and settle for it and amongst it. These ways that we can almost, without really noticing it after a period of time, slowly surrender and yield and give in to them and accept living amongst those conditions. And maybe even assume that that's just the way it is. Yeah, I look around at other people, they've got their things too. It's, it's, we're all just kind of like that. So maybe I should just accept it. Maybe there's nothing I can really do about it. And maybe it's not really that bad anyways. I don't really notice it that much anymore, right? <laughs> That's a bad thing. That's not a good thing. This is like my throat in Manila. When it stops getting sore, that's not a bad thing. That's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. We can think that it doesn't expect affect us all that much anymore, but it's a delusion. It's a delusion. And we can just carry on as we become accustomed to it and comfortable amongst it, living in it, accepting it, neglecting any attempts to change it. We settle for yielding to something that is so much less than God intends for us. Something that is so despairing and defeating as it just grows and grows and grows. It can even become disgracing to our God and to ourselves. Or or how about this? It can just become something that remains limiting. Maybe it doesn't grow into some horrific thing, but it just remains limiting and hindering to all that could be and all that should be according to God's desire and promises for us. We hardly even notice that our walls are either torn down or at least that they have breaches in them breaches in them that our enemy has incredible access to us and we are vulnerable to him in those places. That's pretty much what was happening in Jerusalem. They've accepted the rubble and have learned to live in it and under it, right? Repairing those walls is probably not even on their minds anymore. It's been hundreds, you know, 145 years Their subconscious focus probably is now simply on picking their way through it and tiptoeing around it rather than trying to rebuild it. They're stuck and they're in trouble. And so can we be when we come to accept and to give into either the large or even the smaller bits or piles of rubble in our lives. So again... I ask again, what does it take? What does it take to get you know, unstuck, to get past that position of being locked in and stuck there and to begin, just to begin to address the situation and move towards repair and renewal? Well, as I look at Nehemiah's prayer, what I see, one of the, pro, one of the amazing things that we see here is, is clearly that Nehemiah was powerfully and even painfully struck with the reality and the severity of the situation. Unlike, unlike the complacent, yielding people that were actually living in Jerusalem. I think it takes that. I think it takes that. It takes some gaining of that perspective of being stuck. And sometimes it takes an outside perspective to actually see that. And sure, I suppose that one of the reasons why Nehemiah could see it was that he wasn't living amongst it. It's sort of like me coming to Manila for the first time and seeing the kids in the waters. Like, ah, what are you guys doing? 
That's what Nehemiah is like when he looks with the outside perspective. It helped him because he was not sorry, because, because he was removed from the situation. So sure, that helped, that fresh, detached view of the situation. But I think it was even more than that. I think if we take this to a spiritual level, I believe that Nehemiah was struck so much and shooken so much on this particular day because he was looking at the situation. He was looking at the rubble through the eyes of God and through the promises that God had made. You see, he was still holding on to those promises. He had this spiritual clarity as well. He had a faith and a hope clarity as well. His vision of the situation, of what it was versus what it should be, was still clear. And what he saw was not what should be. He knew that. He just knew that. See, Nehemiah knew. And he chose to remember. And he was determined to believe and to hold on to what God's promises were for his people. And he could now plainly and painfully see that this was not it. That what he saw was not the promises of God. And through this filter of God's eyes this filter of god's promises and faith he could see how far 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 short they were falling from the promises of god and on this occasion with god's perspective with god's view of the situation with god's view of of what should be versus what was nehemiah is struck spiritually and profoundly and powerfully struck with a great grief. A gr- what he's struck with, frankly, is a great dissatisfaction with the way things are. He won't accept it. He can't accept it. This rubble that exists, this just shouldn't be. And he believes that this needn't be. And now Nehemiah sees the situation, now that he sees the situation through God's promises and God's purposes, it's like he can, as long as he keeps doing that, he can never be complacent. He can never be content. He can never accept the rubble the way it is. Not as long as he keeps those perspectives of God's promises in his heart and in his mind. He won't settle. He won't settle for anything short of what God promises and what God wants to do in restoring Israel. So in this whole process of coming to this realization of the rubble, right? God breaks Nehemiah's heart. And I think that's important too. That's sort of the next step along the process for Nehemiah. Is he's shocked by it. Now his heart breaks because of it. You see, God is giving Nehemiah, and, and through Nehemiah, he's give, going to give the people of, of Israel or the the Jewish people, uh, he's going to replace their calloused heart with a broken heart. That's often the first step toward this kind of change. And so Nehemiah, in his brokenness, he sits down and we're told that he weeps, he mourns, he fasts, and he prays. (laughs) He's passionate, right? I mean, those are all pictures of passion. Those are all expressions and manifestations and responses of passion. Weeping, mourning, fasting, and then praying. Right? Let's take a look at the next slide. It leads to this too. 
it leads to confession as well, right? Take a look at our next slide. I might have missed one. Yeah, there we go. It leads to confession. It leads to confession as well. All of this brokenheartedness and this pain that Nehemiah has for for the situation, it leads him to this incredible experience of confession. You see that, right? Most of the prayer is about confession. The vast majority of this prayer is about confession. He prays prayers of confession. And he leaves no stone unturned in his confessing. He proclaims that God is a God who keeps his promises, right? At the beginning of the prayer. And, and in this situation, it's not God that is failing the people. It's not God's promises that are faltering. Not at all. This is a situation of Israel having become complacent and, and yielding and compromised and doubting and despairing and defeated, losing and, and letting go of the ways of God. In other words, there's a lot to confess here. <laughs> I think that's the long and short of it. There's a lot to admit here and to seek forgiveness for. So Nehemiah spends days, we're told, and nights, days and nights, in this posture of confession. He prays confessions for Israel and their history. He prays confessions for himself and his own family and household, which is interesting to me because you'd almost think that Nehemiah is the guy that's on the right track. He's the guy that's doing the right thing. What's he got to confess? Well, he's, he knows he does. He's not going to put himself outside of this. He puts himself inside of it. He knows that he needs to join in to the humble confession as well. So he prays on behalf of himself. He prays on on behalf of the forefathers of Israel and his own forefathers. And he brings it all to the feet of a gracious God who promised, promised that if you call on me, I will listen to you. If you seek me with all of your heart, I will be found by you. If you confess, I will forgive and I will restore you. The good and prosperous plans will be restored. The plans to give you a hope and a future, they will all be restored if you come to me like that. And it was important that this broken-hearted process be enacted. That it should then lead to confession as well. And then, and only then, God began to call Nehemiah into action. And we'll see that in the coming chapters. Right? Now, you see, the ground is laid for God to work through Nehemiah in God's strength. Not Nehemiah's strength, in God's strength. In God's ways, not Nehemiah's ways. For God's purposes, not Nehemiah's purposes. Nehemiah is completely submitted in humility to God to work with the rubble. God will work with the rubble and use that very rubble to build his purposes and his strength right out of the rubble. And certainly, in order for God to work like that in us, in order for us to move beyond where we might be stuck or just faltering or struggling, to realize and to possess the very promises, like all the promises that God has for us, for our own spiritual walls to be built high and strong well, we also have to be able to see the ruin in which we may have or have gotten stuck. 
we also have to be able to see the cracks and the broken spots and the holes in our spiritual walls and in our lives. We need to look at where our enemy is able to enter our lives and take advantage. We need to be able to see the rubble. We need to be able to see it for all that it is and see it through God's eyes, just like Nehemiah did. And when we see it, we must acknowledge it, and then we must confess it, right? That's why God wants us to see it. Not so that he can humiliate us with it, but so that he can bring us to a point of humble confession. Humble confession as we see it from God's perspective in light of his promises. And then our hearts can become softened as well in those areas. They can become pliable. And if need be, they can even break if they're too hard to the point where, where we just can't be satisfied with that complacency anymore, being stuck there anymore. And as we acknowledge it and confess it, knowing that God will help us, you know, by His strength and by His grace, He will help us move past those stuck conditions. And He will forgive and He will restore. He promised He will. He promises He will. If we will just come to Him in humility like that. With our rubble. <laughs> right? I, I want to stress that. That we come to Him with our rubble. That we even come to Him while we're in the midst of our rubble. And I say that because I want to stress to you, do not, do not get stuck into this idea that we've got to get it cleaned up before we can come to Him. <laughs> Don't. You can't. Just come to Him with it. Come to Him in the midst of it. You can't clean it up yourself anyways. We've, we've usually proven that with our own track record. And the other thing is that God is going to take that very rubble and use it to build His purposes in our lives. That's the building material that He's going to use. Not a single experience, even difficult experience, even painful experience. He will take them all and He will turn them into the building blocks that He will build the beautiful, good promises in your life from those very experiences that you thought were maybe wasted. He'll do that. So just come and bring it all to Him. You know, I very much get the sense that if I could, if I could, if I could only grasp what God sees, if I could just see the world, see Port Alberni, see my own life, see our church, see it all the very way that God sees it. You know, I wonder what I would see. I wonder how it would look. If I could see the rubble of our world, of my life, of this city, even us, us as a church, the way God sees it, the disrepair, the hurt, the damage, the destruction, big and small, exactly the way God sees it. The way it's maybe slipping in some places. I suspect, I suspect if I could, it would be much like what I saw those first two weeks when I was in the Philippines. It would probably feel a lot like that there would probably be a good deal of alarm that's going, whoa, that's not good. That is so far off. That's just not right. 
I might even have the same sort of revulsion towards it that I had at seeing those kids swimming in the river. I might even shed some of the same tears that I was at the verge of shedding when I saw those kids sitting and swimming in the river. I might even have this urge to run down and shout out in the streets, this is not good, the way I wanted to for those kids down at the river. If I could just see it truly the way God sees it. If we could be graced with that perspective, we would be shaken. And I think we would probably be shaken right down to tears and to our knees in prayer. Don't you think? Don't you think? Crying out to God, crying out for mercy, for God to intercede in our lives, in our world, in our church, in our city, for the spiritual condition and the brokenness of it all. Repenting (laughs) for ourselves and for the rubble in our own lives and for the horror of the complacency and the yielding and the accepting that we could see if we looked through those eyes. Several years ago, I got a phone call from a man I'd never met before. He was very distraught. Very distraught. He wanted to meet with me the next day. And he said, I have to. I have to meet with you the next tomorrow. And uh, he was adamant about it. So I changed my schedule around and I met with him the next day and I'll never forget the meeting. It's one of several that I've had like this. And he called, we met, we got together, and when I sat down with him, I met a man that was so dark. Just his countenance was just darkness. He was scary. He looked scary. And at the same time, he looked incredibly scared. He was shaking. He was hardly able to speak. He was in disrepair. He was desperate. And he was disgraced. He told me how shamefully he felt and how shamefully he had acted. And he had to get this stuff off his chest with a pastor. Several months ago, he had turned himself into the police, he told me. He couldn't stand the way that he was living, all the things that he had done, the places that he'd been, how he was stuck in life is really what he was talking about. He was so desperate. And uh, he told me that uh, if if I didn't turn myself in seven months ago, I knew I was going to kill myself. And that's why I turned myself in. And then for the next hour or so, through tears and sobs and obvious shame, he told me his whole story. And all the while he was telling me the story, he was fingering this cross that was hanging around his neck. Never let go of it. Had it in his fingers and just working it the whole time he was talking to me. And I just let him go. I just let him exhaust himself with his story. And at the end of it all, and he he finished with some of the worst, he looked at me in absolute despair and he just said, help. When he finished his story, he just looked up and said, help. And I just sat there for a moment. And he said again, what do I do? So I turned to him and I said, that's a bad story. That's a lot of hurt and a lot of brokenness 
and a lot of pain that you're carrying. And he began to sob again. And I had to get him to look at me. I said, I want you to look at me. Look at me. And he, continuing to sob, he looked up at me. Um, and I said to him, I'll bet that all of those things or most of those things that you've done and caused hurt to others, those very same things were done to you when you were younger. And then he just erupted. He just exploded and burst out and melted down into just a sobbing mess. And I thought to myself, man, this guy is ready to be released. <laughs> He's ready. He is so ready. And then I explained to him, I said, I've, I've got good news for you. He said, that cross that you're holding, that you won't let go of. I said, do you know what it's about? And he said, no, not really. <laughs> I said, well, let me tell you. And then I went on to tell him about how that cross represents real, tangible payment for your sins. And as painful as your sins were to other people and now are to yourself, that much pain and more was shed to pay the price of your sins. I want you to realize that there was a real, tangible, costly payment that was made for all of these things that you're suffering from. And that can be paid on your behalf to relieve you from your own sins. You're free. We're not just forgetting about them. They've been paid for. They've been covered. The cost and the hurt is covered for you. And when I explained that to him, with him still holding the, cro the cross, he literally transformed in front of my eyes. This man who was just like one of the darkest looking personas that I'd ever seen on a human being just lit up. He lit up. It was almost like he was glowing. It was like it was not even the same person anymore. His smile just became radiant. This sense of peace just exploded. And, and the sobs that he was fighting against the whole time just turned into smiles. You see, he had gone through this process of being utterly broken and desperate to the point that he was willing to risk anything, even faith. <laughs> he was even willing to risk giving himself over to this hope in this God that he was fingering the cross of this God's very own son but didn't know why it was so important. He was brokenhearted, but God was replacing a calloused heart with a broken heart. And it was a beautiful thing. And it was his humility and his brokenness that drove him to it. Sometimes it takes that to get us to the levels of confession that we really need to get to. Humility and brokenness. So humility. You know, the best definition I've ever heard for humility is to understand in your heart of hearts and to believe that you are no better than any other person. And as I look through the lens of God at my own life, in that situation with that man, I needed to look through the lens of the reality that I was no better than this guy. In the end of it all, 
I had to believe in my heart of hearts that I was no better than him and needed everything that he needed just as much as he needed it. If I could look at my own life through the very eyes of God, that's what I would see. The despair and brokenness that I could see through the lens of my own eyes in his life, God could see all of that in my life too. And I needed to understand that. And it drove me to prayers of confession as well. We can be sure, we can be very, very sure that the first step towards rebuilding spiritually and towards rebuilding God and his purposes and promises in our own lives and amongst us is to allow him to let us truly see the rubble for all that it is. The things that would prevent us from getting there for all that it is. And to strike us. And to strike us perhaps hard in the heart with a sorrowful dissatisfaction with the rubble that exists. And where it exists. Whether it's a lot or a little. It doesn't matter. It inhibits humility. It starts with humility. Brokenheartedness and repentance. We got next slide. Yeah, there it is. So in light of the direction that Nehemiah is taking us, uh, between a, a number of the people in our church, so the leaders, the, the, the elders, the deacons, the, the deaconesses, uh, the staff of the church, uh, over the course of this week, we've come to this uh, conclusion. That one of the things God needs to lead us into is prayer that as we step into a whole new phase of life in this church where we're seeking God to prepare for and to bring in a new pastor eventually that will lead us into what? The next 10 or more years of purpose that God has for this church. We need to start with prayer. And our prayer needs to start, I think, the same place that it started with Nehemiah was in humility and repentance. I think it's got to start there. So we thought we need to call people to prayer. And the first thing we should step into in our prayer is prayers of repentance. And maybe we should all start for ourselves. It's like, it's too tempting to, to think, oh yeah, I remember so-and-so in the church. I should probably start with him because he's really bad. He's really got problems. Like, no, don't do that. Start with you. Every one of us, start with us. That's the place to start. In humility. Prayers of repentance. We chose 100 days, not because really we chose it, but we actually counted out the amount of days it would take us to get through Nehemiah. And started, if we started yesterday, we sort of announced it on Friday, starting yesterday would take us right through to exactly 100 days to our final sermon in Nehemiah. So that seemed providential. <laughs> that was a little too much to ignore. So it's like, let's do that. 100 days of prayer. It's going to start with repentance. But it's going to expand beyond that too. But let's start where we should start. With ourselves, in humility, with repentance. And see where God leads us. See where God leads us. Amen? So you're going to get more and more notification uh, around this in sort of directions to play, pray, places to pray, uh, purpose, people to pray for as we move forward into this. But let's start with prayers of confession and repentance. And we'll move forward from there. 
A number of people you've already heard probably are, are going to be praying at 6 p.m. The deaconesses sort of set that up. They used to do that, so they're going to do that again. Uh, you don't have to pray at 6 p.m. Uh, for myself, I'm actually going to aim to pray at 9 a.m. That's what I'm shooting for. It's usually when I arrive at the office and I'm going to spend the first chunk of time I get here in prayer, starting with prayers of repentance. Um, and we might even set up a mechanism where you can let us know when you're praying, just so that we can kind of catalog it. Uh, document it to see how many people are praying and when and the impact that it's having. Let's spur each other on in this. This would be a good thing to spur each other on. Perhaps an absolutely necessary thing to spur each other on if we're going to reach the goals and the plans and the purposes that God has for us. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness your overwhelming goodness to us, your promises to us. You never fail us. You never fail us. Even though we stumble a lot, even though I stumble a lot and falter a lot, you never do. And while you don't, you don't embrace our faltering, you never reject us for it. You always are open to receiving us back. You're always there waiting for us to come if we will just come in repentance and humility and lay out our stuff before you. And then you take it, and you work with it, and you create your plans and your purposes from it. So Lord, I pray that you would launch us into that, and that we would see (laughs) so many of the good, ah, powerful plans to prosper us that you have begin to come together. Lord, keep us at this. Keep us on this course. Keep us on this long course of obedience in the same direction and see where it will take us. See where you will take us. Lord, we need that. We desire that. We want that. In the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you all.